Here they go. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, I'm coming back to this church. <laughs> hey, welcome to the well. My name is Tori. I am the lead pastor here. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, happy Easter. Happy. Amen. Man, Jesus reigns and is alive. Amen. Um, I already cried four times this morning, no joke, that does not bode well for a short sermon, <laughs> all right? So let's go ahead and dive right in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we won't be moving from there today, so uh, feel free to turn there. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you, so please feel free to take and keep that, that's our gift to you. Uh, we would love for you to own a Bible, and so uh, please, please, please take that one home. Uh, 1 Corinthians, I said 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you will see uh, is right after the Gospels and the letter of Acts and Romans, so uh, it's in the New Testament, you can turn there. Uh, you can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the YouVersion app underneath the events, type in the Well Austin, you can follow along that way. If you don't know what that is, you can actually just take this link and put it right into your browser and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, there are notes, all the scripture for today, and so uh, we say this every week, so if you're new at the Well, I hope you know that we mean this, that we want your eyes on the word. And so uh, we don't want you to think that we're kind of making some of this up or, or trying to be cute. Like we really think that this is God's word to us, how he communicates his affection and his love for us. And so uh, whatever that looks like on your phone and your physical Bibles, we'd love for you to be looking at the scripture with us. Okay. Um, here's what I want to contend with us today. Okay. I want to contend that there is nothing more important than what we will be talking about today. There is nothing uh, that we need to hear more. There is nothing that is a uh, more hopeful message. And I know that that is kind of a, a, a large contend kind of right up bat because some of us are struggling with things, right? Like, like some of us think, hey, maybe there's nothing more important than like hearing how to get my marriage together or how to find a girlfriend or boyfriend so I can get married in the first place, right? Or maybe be uh, parenting or, or I have financial struggle or whatever it may be, but I would contend that there is nothing more important than what we're actually going to be talking about. And I think that some of us would say that we believe that. In fact, I would probably say that a lot of us would probably intellectually assent to that to some extent, but I don't know if we've actually internalized it, that uh, we live our lives as if this is the most important thing that exists, is the message that we'll be covering today. So I personally remember for me, uh, when this became more than just a, a, an intellectual ascent, but actually uh, landed in my heart and began to take root in very, very beautiful ways. I was uh, younger, uh, and if you would have asked me, uh, I probably would have said that I was a Christian. Uh, I kind of believed in Jesus. I had this loose knowledge of Christian doctrine and Christian philosophy and, and what Jesus had done for me. And I even prayed a prayer a couple of times, all right? And, and so I felt like, hey, that might have done something to me, but I did not have a relationship with the God of the universe. I did not know him in that way. There was no intimacy there. And so I would just kind of take Jesus and then, and then sprinkle him on some things that I found him worthy or necessary to do that, right? Like, like salt or something, okay? Like, hey, this tastes good, doesn't need any Jesus on it, right? This tastes terrible, let's sprinkle some Jesus on that, right? Right? And throw it on there, okay? And, and what would happen is that Jesus would become, to some extent, almost like a good luck charm for me, like a, like a lucky rabbit's foot. Like when situations were hard or when I was frustrated or whatever it may be, then I would take Jesus and kind of sprinkle him onto that and hope that the situation would got better. So I knew of God, but I didn't know God, right? Like, like, like I know of George Washington, in fact, I believe in George Washington, right? I, I intellectually assent that George Washington was a human being who was the president of the United States of America, right? Like, like I, I intellectually assent to that, 
but I don't know George Washington. You tracking with that? Right? Like, so I don't want you to think I'm crazy, okay? I know George Washington. I did not know George Washington. And I think in the same way, I knew Jesus. I could intellectually ascend. I could kind of understand, but, but I didn't know Jesus, right? There wasn't a, a relationship there. And when he came in to my apathetic heart and he came alive in me, everything changed. Everything changed. There was nothing in my life that was not altered in some way to center around the person and the work of Jesus. And I realized that there's really nothing more important. And all of a sudden, my desires began to be to love, to serve, to honor, to worship God because He was real. He is real. Right? And, and I felt that and I knew that. And so I felt like he loved me and I felt like he spoke to me. And I would contend that a lot of us in here would need to see God in that way, even if we're seeing him like that over and over and over again. Even if maybe we have kind of entered into relationship, but maybe it's fallen onto apathy or whatever it may be. I would contend that we have to really wrestle and realize that it's important that we know God, not just know God. Okay, and so I think that uh, we would contend that Jesus is worth following. This is the important piece. And so scripture and Jesus himself does not allow us to kind of just sprinkle some Jesus on top of stuff. All right, it doesn't allow us that privilege. In fact, it actually beckons and calls for our lives. But leaving in him, submitting to him, following him, there's nothing more important, nor is there anything more freeing? Is there anything more life-giving? Is there anything more exhilarating? Is there anything that, that awakens up within us the purpose, the desire that we know that we have? There's nothing that does that like the gospel of Jesus. And this is what Paul contends with us in 1 Corinthians. So uh, we're going to look at four ways that uh, Paul says, here's what the gospel is, okay? There are four things that Paul says, here's what the gospel is. That's what we'll be doing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now we'll come back to these verses actually at the end of the sermon, but Paul kind of lines up what he's doing in this chapter. He tells us in verse one, he's going to be talking about the gospel. This is the gospel, Paul says. And if you're not familiar with that word, that word just very simply means good news, all right? This is the good news. This is, this is the saving news that, that I want to tell to you. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul goes into it. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So firstly, we see that this is of first importance, hence where we get our sermon title today, nothing more important, right? Paul says, this is of first importance. If there's one thing that I want to communicate to you, it is this right here, all right? Good news. And what is the first point that Paul says the gospel is? Well, he says that the gospel is about Jesus. That's point one. The gospel is about Jesus. In fact, you could actually just say the gospel is Jesus, the gospel is Jesus. The good news is Jesus, and everything kind of centers around him. It's the first word there, right? This is of first importance. The word that isn't even in the Greek. It's just trying to 
help us as English speakers, right? Christ is the very first word, the Messiah, the Savior. This is what everything kind of centers around. He is the beginning, he is the end, and he is the central piece that everything comes together to. In fact, everything else that we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually talking about what Jesus did. And so really, it's just a, a, a fuller explanation of the gospel, but the good news is Jesus, And so there's one point to take away today. It's just the gospel is Jesus. And that's what Paul says. Everything centers around what Jesus did. And this should immediately make us realize that there's something different about this man. There's something different about the man Jesus. See, because every other religion and every other philosophy in the whole entire world says, hey, there's something wrong, and here's what you must do about it. There's something wrong with the world. We can kind of Ascent to that intellectually too, right? And and here's what you must do about it. Every other religion, their leaders came as teachers, but Christianity says that our leader came not as a teacher, but as a savior. And there's a big difference. He wasn't just trying to teach us about things to do. No, he was trying to save us. And everything else kind of tells us things that we should or shouldn't do, but, but Jesus comes to save us, right? So it's not just religions. Think about your favorite uh, magazine, right, or talk show or book or whatever it may be. They all say kind of the same thing, don't they? Something wrong with the world, right? Your marriage is in shambles. Uh, you don't make enough money. You continually, emotionally kind of are all over the place and messed up, right? You're overweight. Your sex life is miserable. You dress like you're blind, okay? And here's what you need to do about it, right? Like, like here's what's wrong, and here's what you need to do. Everything else around us kind of begins to start off with that as the premise. And so the, the five pillars of Islam or, or the teachings of Buddha or Money Magazine or, or Oprah or Cosmopolitan, which I've never read, by the way, okay? I literally had to type in popular magazines on Google when I was doing this, all right? Everything else kind of says, hey, here's what is wrong, and here's what you need to do about it. Christianity, though, is completely different. It says, here's what Christ has done. Not here's what you need to do. Here's what Christ has done. In fact, in this whole passage, it never tells us anything that we have to do. Don't you find that intriguing? Everything else in the world says, we know there's something wrong. Now here's what you must do. Christianity says, yeah, there's something wrong. Here's what Jesus did. On our behalf, right? Like, 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 doesn't that feel even just a little bit freeing? I mean, aren't you tired to some extent of always trying to fix things yourself? Maybe you're a lot better than I am, but every time I try to fix things, I tend to make it a little bit worse, right? I bought a house and our house needed a little bit of work. And every time I try to fix something, I have to call somebody and it's more expensive than when I started, right? And I feel like that with my soul too sometimes, don't you? Right, like, like we try to fix things, we try to, we try to work on things, and then we kind of end up maybe fixing that, but actually making this way worse in the process, and it's all over the place. And so the whole world puts this burden on top of you and says, here's what you need to do. Christianity says, no, 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 it's about Jesus. Here's what Christ has done. Here's who he is. So Jesus is not just a teacher, but he's a savior, okay? Point two. The gospel, so point one, gospel about Jesus. Point two, the gospel is about sin and substitution. I know those are both big words and touchy words, so I'll explain both, okay? Sin is simply that there's something wrong. It's what we've been saying over and over again. There's something wrong where we feel it, we know it, right? So sin just says, hey, there's something wrong, and, and there's a shortcoming. There, there's something that isn't the way that we know that it is supposed to be, 
Okay? There's something that's off in our lives, in the world around us. There, there are things that aren't always connecting the way that our hearts kind of speak to us and say, these things should connect a little bit better. Right? Sin means there's something wrong. Now, if you don't think there's anything wrong, then you don't need the gospel message. Straight up. Okay? If you don't think there's anything wrong, you don't need the gospel message, what we're preaching on today. You also don't watch any TV. You're not on social media. And you don't talk to any other human beings. Right? Because, like, like, haven't you been wronged by someone before? Haven't, so hasn't somebody else? So, so sin, for sure, there's something wrong in general. But we know, man, even sometimes that afflicts us. This morning, I get on uh, 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 online, and I'm on a news site, and the first nine things are these negative stories. The 10th story is the oldest person alive, right? And the only reason that was a story is because the other oldest person died, <laughs> Which we say there's something wrong, right? Like we don't want death and we know that none of us want that. So the first somewhat positive story is number 10 and even that's not really that positive. There's all around us. We know that. We see it. We, we feel it, right? Like hasn't somebody discouraged you? Haven't you been offended in some way? And this passage says that Christ came to die for sin. There's something that is wrong. Jesus Christ came to do something about that. Not just tell us what we should do. No, no, no. He came as a savior to do something about that. If we're honest, though, we know that there's not just something wrong with this world, but there's something wrong with us. It says Christ came to die for what? Our sin. Me and you, our sin. It's not just that things happen to us, they do, and that actually adds to the carnage of the world, but we ourselves actually add to the carnage of the world, too. And this is where Christianity also differs, because every other philosophy in the world says that they are the problem, right? The, the they are the problem. But they're so judgmental and hypocritical in that, aren't they? Like, like they're the ones that is the problem. You think about our political system, right? The Democrats say the Republicans are the problem. The Republicans say the Republicans are the problem and the Democrats are the problem, <laughs> right? There's a, a news media outlet that say, is this outlet or is this outlet? Or everybody's always kind of pointing the finger. But Christianity is actually so inclusive, isn't it? It says, we are the problem, right? You and me, we, we add to the carnage and the, and, the, and the disruption of the world. The Bible says that there's something wrong inside of us. And if we're honest, we know that that's true. We know that we don't do things that we want to do and we do things that we don't want to do. Like, I started a New Year's resolution that once a week I would try to eat healthier because I eat out a lot. I'm a pastor meeting with people. And so once a week I would, like, replace a burger with a salad. I just like burgers too much, right? And so I'm not eating healthy, okay? And so I try to fix this, and I'm like, oh, I know I should do this, but I've never been to this burger place before. And so even in tiny ways we see we're not able to do what we want to do, Right? And that's just a tiny, that's a silly example. But what about when it gets serious? Like, what about when we want to kick that addiction? What about when we uh, 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 are trying to forgive somebody or reconcile a relationship? Or what about when we're kind of holding on to things and hurting people? We know that we add to the carnage of the world. We just don't think about it a lot because we kind of block ourselves off from feeling that. But the Bible is so inclusive. They aren't the problem. We are the problem, it says. There's something wrong with us. I know I used to think that I wasn't that bad of a person, okay? Like I would try to do a lot of good things, and I felt like I kind of did either like neutral or good things with a little bit of bad things here and there, right? That's what I felt like. Then I was in college and already a Christian at this point, 
and I was dating these girls, and I found all my identity in the people that I dated. That's just how I found my identity. I didn't feel like I had worth or value unless somebody said that the person I was dating had great worth or value, and that somehow made me better. And what began to happen is I began to hold on to these relationships, even when I knew that this wasn't who God had intended to be my wife. I needed this relationship, and so what I would do is I would kind of hold on just a little bit too long, and I remember very, very clearly that the last two relationships that I had before God finally kind of broke me of this is both of these people ended up depressed. One of them so depressed that she ended up suicidal. And literally, it was linked back to me to where I got pulled into a counseling session. And they're like, what are you doing? Right? Because it was our pastor and I was a believer. And I felt like I wasn't doing anything that wrong. In fact, why doesn't she just get over it? right, is what I feel like. But in reality, I'm actually adding into the carnage of the world because I'm holding on for some weird selfish reason because I need to be elevated in some way and I am hurting her. And then when she began to get hurt, there were other things that got hurt through this. And slowly but surely, the cycle started trickling down. If we're honest, even the small things that we do actually add into the carnage of the world. And then I had kids and I wanted to throw my child through the wall when they started frustrating me. Right? Only the parents laughed at that. They're like, yeah, preach that. Okay, don't worry. Y'all will find out at some point, okay, how you want to shake a baby, right? And I knew in my own heart, in my own heart, there's something that's corrupt. There's something that's wrong. What is wrong with me? I would say. And I would try to fix it, try to fix it, try to fix it, and I could not do it. The Bible says that this is exactly what Jesus came to die for, was my sin, was our sin, right? Ultimately, that sin would cut me off from God. Ultimately, that sin would not just cut me off from my relationship with other people, like how I hurt these two women or the many other people that I lied to or used for my own glory. It also cuts me off from God. It also cuts me off from relationship with other people. Like my sin is just all over the place. But the gospel is about sin and substitution, not just the negative, but the positive. Why? Because the gospel says Jesus can fix this. Jesus can fix what is wrong with us. The gospel is that Jesus died for me, for you. Christ died for our sins. I love that actually Christ died before he even mentioned sins. Christ is the remedy to the problem that we know that we have in our hearts. Jesus died for us. That word for there in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 means on behalf of. So Jesus took my place. Jesus takes my wrong and gives me the good that he deserves. So he takes on my shame, my guilt, my sin, my death, my carnage that I place upon the world. He takes that upon himself. And instead, he gives me the righteousness, the intimacy, the connection, the relationship, the life, the fullness, the hope, the joy that he should be experiencing. He gives this to me and takes on my guilt. Sin is about, or, or gospel is about sin, but also substitution. Jesus trades places, if you will. He takes on our pain and gives you his life. This is another reason why Jesus isn't just a teacher. A teacher tells us what we need to do about the problem. Jesus came and fixed the problem. Jesus began to do something about it. And this is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Ultimately, this sin would lead us from separation for God forever. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I love them. I long for a relationship. The father says, I love them for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And see, a lot of us see God as like wanting to judge us and waiting to punish us. But the gospel, the Bible says, no, no, no. God loves us so much. He's waiting and looking for a way to save us. 
anything possible, so much so that he would give up his son. The son loves us so much that he would give up his life, that we would be brought into relationship with him. There are a bunch of different analogies in the Bible for what happened on the cross. One of them is the analogy of a marketplace. It says that we owed a debt. Sin is a debt, and there's a debt that we owe. But the Bible says that Jesus came and paid that debt for us. Now, why that's so important is because back in the day when you owned a debt and you couldn't pay it, you were made a slave. And the Bible says that we actually became slaves to our flesh, to the enemy, to to Satan, to sin. We became slaves to it. We had to obey his desires. When sin called out for us, we answered that call. It was our master. But Jesus comes and he pays the debt. It also says that the gospel is like a battlefield, right? That, That there's an enemy Satan, the snake, and you saw the snake get crushed. We've been going through Genesis as a church so far, and that's kind of the whole theme of all the Bible, that something happened in Genesis 3, and there's this enemy, the snake, but Jesus comes and smashes the head of the snake. He wins the battle for us where we could not win. Or sometimes it's used as a courtroom. We stand before a judge, God, the judge of the world, and we have all of our sins laid out, and then we realize, oh, shoot, We're not as good as he is perfect. We can't measure up. But then Jesus comes as our advocate and says, no, no, no. I'm going to not only fight for them, I will take the punishment that they deserve, showing that God is both the just God who does punish sin rightly and the justifier who makes us pure, who makes us whole. But every single analogy of the cross, there are a bunch more, every single analogy has to do with substitution that Jesus took our place and gave us his righteousness, the glory that Jesus deserved for never having sinned, for being God himself, Jesus, we get that upon us. Every single analogy, there's a substitution. Thirdly, the gospel is about a historical resurrection. Let's keep reading a little bit in this passage. Verse five. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All scholars, even those who don't believe in the Bible, would say that this letter was written by the apostle Paul about 20 years after the resurrection. Now, the reason that's important is because Paul is saying there are 500 men that saw Jesus raised from the grave, 500 of them, okay? So if I'm in a court of law and I call up 500 witnesses, I don't care who the other lawyer is, I'm winning that case, right? Like like bring Johnny Cochran, I'm beating him, right? He was the OJ lawyer in case you didn't catch that, okay? Forgot to throw that in there, right? I would still win, right? And so... The good thing, the important thing about this is that for Christians, it was not advantageous to profess Christ. Like we live in a time in a world where we're kind of just exiting that to some extent. But for the past several decades, it's actually been advantageous to profess that you are a believer. Not here, y'all. Not here. Because 11 of the 12, uh, uh, or sorry, 10 of the 11 apostles ended up getting killed for the faith. The one that didn't get killed got boiled alive, and then he didn't die, so he got left on a deserted island to die all by himself. That's worse than death, okay? Like, at that point, I would rather die, okay? And a lot of these 500 men and women that said that they saw Jesus, they also were killed for the faith. 
It wasn't like it was advantageous to say that you saw Christ. And what Paul is saying is, this is a historical fact. If you don't believe this, just go ask some of these men and women. They would tell you Jesus resurrected from the grave, that Jesus is alive. They, they saw him with their own eyes. What also I love about this is that it kind of uh, discredits uh, or, or disassembles all other theories, like the disciples stole his body or something like that. You know, listen, at some point when I start seeing everybody getting offed for the faith, if it was a lie, I'd be like, hey, I ain't dying for them suckers, right? Like, like, that's not true. Hey, this did not happen, okay? At some point, if it was like a magic trick or a hoax or some other way, I would say, this is not true. Nobody that professed Christ in the early days ever recanted because they saw him and they were changed. This is crazy. This is crazy. Like, we can't even get, like, like 500 people to say the same thing about anything today, Right? There was a famous detective who said, the reason that I know the resurrection is true is because I worked on the Watergate scandal. After three hours, everybody was sharing a different story. And we have the Bible that says, after 20 years, these people are getting killed for the faith and they're still saying the same thing. We saw Jesus rise. He's alive. This is a historical truth. 500 people, you can't bribe that many people. So Paul's saying, hey, if you don't believe this, just ask them. And here's the important piece, the resurrection, he says. This is of importance. This is what we celebrate today as Easter is the resurrection. Why does Paul say it's of first importance? Because the resurrection to some extent proves that what Jesus did on the cross is real. It proves that the price that he paid, the sin and substitution, that that, that is real, that we can accredit it to our account. His, his substitute to pay for sin, to fix what is wrong with the world that that is all true. It gives us meaning and purpose and value in life far beyond the grave because it makes things eternal. When I was younger, I used to go to the mall. Okay, not like I don't anymore, but definitely not as much as I used to. And I would walk around, okay, these stores, all right, and I would, I would go into these stores and every time I'd go into a store, like I'd get like the security guards kind of following me around, okay? I'll save a race joke for later in the sermon, all right? And so they would, one time in particular, I had this bag, and this guy came and said, uh, excuse me, sir, did you buy those jeans, right? And they were super fly jeans, right? And so what did I do? I reached in the bag and went, pata! What did I pull out? The receipt, right? This is proof that I bought these jeans. Be gone, sucker, is what I told him, right? <laughs> this is what it is, okay? The resurrection is our pata, be gone, sucker, of sin and death and Satan and the enemy. Listen, friends, do you know, particularly if you have professed faith in Christ, do you know how to pull out the receipt? When shame and guilt and weightiness or whatever it may be, when it gets cast upon you, when the enemy lies like Jesus has not risen, do you know how to pull out the receipt and say, be gone, be gone? When your own fears, when your own doubts, when your own frustrations come, Can you look at the historicity of the resurrection and say, be gone. Jesus is alive. This is not a lie. There are too many things that happened in human history that altered everything when Jesus rose from the grave. This has got to be true. The resurrection is the receipt that Jesus paid in full. All the things that is wrong, he has paid it. And he will bring it to completion for those who believe in him. That one day we will be made perfect like him. No more tears, no more shame, no more suffering. Everything that our hearts are screaming out for, Jesus pays. 
This is what the resurrection tells us. So the gospel, one, is about Jesus. Two, it deals with sin and substitution. Three, it's a historical resurrection. And finally, number four, it is life-changing. The gospel is life-changing. Let's finish up. Read verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though not I, but the grace of God that is within me. What could change someone like Paul, who, if you don't know his story, was a racist, self-righteous, morally conscious person who thought that he was too good of a human being, and to somebody who would say, I am the least of all the apostles. What else can do that? What else can take somebody like Paul and alter his life that much? This is what Paul is trying to say. Only the gospel is able to humble us like this, right? Justin Wainscott says this too. He says, God turned a self-righteous Pharisee into one who would call himself the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners. A man-made gospel will not do that. Man can't make this up to alter hearts that drastically, Because haven't you read a lot of self-help stuff and aren't you kind of a little bit the same person? (laughs) Those things don't do that, right? They may change a little bit, but ultimately the root of who we are is still here. The gospel comes into the root of who we are and it utterly changes us. Paul says, I am utterly different now. This man who used to slaughter the church is now the main person trying to build up the church. Man-made things don't do that. Like if, if you're doubting whether or not the gospel can work for you, look at Paul. If you're doubting whether or not the gospel can be active and effectual in your life, look at Paul. He's a great scenario for that. Because you can't be good enough because you're not more moral than Paul was. Let me just say it like that, okay? You don't keep the law better than Paul did. He boasted in that all the time. And so you can't be good enough, and yet he proclaims his need for the gospel and for a savior because he's not good enough. Simultaneously, you can't be bad enough because anybody in here ever start slaughtering the bride of Christ? Right? Like, did you kill Christians left and right? If so, don't befriend me because I got kids. All right? Like, like, Paul was this super, super morally upright guy, and he was this guy who did these terrible things. Paul is a great case study that you cannot be good enough to where you don't need God, nor can you be bad enough to where God can't save you. All of us need the gospel. It is our sin that Jesus died for, our self-righteous sin that would make us religious and think that religion can save us, it can't, or our our licentious sin that would say we can do whatever we want to do and that we need saving from too. The gospel actually handles both situations. And Paul is a great case study for this. The gospel is life-changing. But friends, listen to me, okay? It's just that. It's life-changing That's what the gospel is. Look down at verse 19 really quickly. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people, or or we are of all people most to be pitied. The gospel doesn't just come in and give us a get out of hell free card. That's, That's what I mean in that, okay? The gospel doesn't just come in and say, as long as you profess this, then boom, man, you get out of hell. That's all it is, right? No, 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 no. The the gospel is life-changing. Like, look at what Paul is saying here. 
Jesus is not just a good philosophy. If Jesus is just a good philosophy, then we of all people are to be most pitied. What are we doing in here right now? Right? Like, like, what are we doing with this? If Jesus is just a good philosophy, there are a lot of really good philosophies in the world. No, we are people to be most pitied if we believe this and he didn't actually raise. But listen, friends, Jesus actually rose. And so now Paul says exact opposite. Instead of a people to be most pitied, we're actually to be exalted. We get to be with him one day on the throne with God. Friends, this is crazy. The gospel changes everything. It's a life-changing What are we living our lives for if Jesus hasn't resurrected? If Jesus has resurrected, why would we live our lives for anything else? Nothing else is that more important. Friends, Jesus smashed sin, death, Satan, the grave. Don't you want to overcome sin, death, Satan, and the grave? We can be substituted. He can take our sorrow and give us his joy. This is the whole message of the Bible. When we pick up in Genesis next week as a church, we'll see this over and over again, this anticipation of what Jesus is going to do. He will save us, but we have to be humble enough to embrace him. We have to be humble enough to accept him. And here's the deal. I'll close with this. Remember back in verse 2, you can look back there again if you want. I said we'll hit on this at the end. Paul says, unless you believed in vain, at the end of verse 2, unless you believed in vain, okay, what does that mean? Unless your belief is empty, meaningless, vanity is what Paul is saying. He's saying, unless the gospel hasn't actually changed you. If you believe it is the power of God for salvation, you are being changed unless the gospel hasn't actually saved you. Unless it hasn't done anything. See, if the gospel isn't life-changing, then it isn't the gospel. The gospel comes in and alters who we are. It begins to change who we are. And many of us, I would guess, we have a faith, a belief in Jesus the way that we believe in George Washington. We intellectually assent to the fact that he is alive, but has he entered into our heart and exploded his love, joy, peace, kindness into us? Has the Holy Spirit came into our lives and began to break old habits and make us a new person? Is Jesus alive, not just from the tomb, but in our dead hearts? Has Jesus come alive? Has the gospel began to change? When Jesus came into my life, everything altered. And 15 plus years ago, when I first began to believe in Jesus, everything has changed from then on out. It has changed who I am. Now, maybe I might be crazy, okay? And after hearing this whole sermon, you may think, actually, that could be a possibility. And I'm fine with that, all right? Like, either I'm kind of hearing someone speak their love and affection to me in their heart. Either the things that I used to be enslaved to, I can now easily overcome. Either the scriptures, which used to read like a dictionary, now read like words and rivers of life into my heart. Either I began to get a little bit psycho in my head, or somebody came in and did something. The gospel is not in vain for those who believe it's life-changing Something happens. Jesus alters who we are. And friends, my prayer today is not just that you would intellectually assent to the first three points. Gospel is about Jesus. Sin is substitution. It's a historical resurrection. But that point four would be true. That it would be life-changing. That it would alter who you are. And you may ask, well, well, how does this help me today? Okay, How does it not help you today? 
The gospel changes your marriage, your finances, your relationships. It changes your eternity and your present. It changes the way that you overcome sin. It it deals with your emotional ups and downs and highs and lows. It changes everything. How is it not applicable for us today? But the gospel is life-changing. Jesus fixes everything, and he came to handle sin and to give us his life. Lest our faith just be an Easter faith which I would think Paul would say is a vain faith, it's an empty faith, would we allow the gospel to actually come in and change who we are, friends? This is what the Bible is about. This is what happened. Men and women died because they saw something. Are you willing to die for our king who died for you? The gospel is life-changing, and I pray that even today you would be humble enough to allow it to change your life, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 5,000th time. Yeah, keep letting it change. And submit to our king who is sitting throne in heaven, not in a grave in grave clothes today. Amen. I love you guys. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the gospel. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Man, so good, Christ, that you would come down for broken people like us. God, I pray that for those who are wrestling with the faith today, that they would be able to taste and see that you are good, that you are good, that you are good. God, I pray for those who who may not even know, God, who may not even know uh, uh, who you are, who may be kind of wrestling with their faith. God, I pray that even today they would actually kind of challenge that they would kind of say, God, if you are real, then, then prove yourself to me. And God, that you would prove yourself. Maybe you've already be- 